I can tell you one of the worst days of my life was the day that I told, I remember sitting on the couch in the living room and it was maybe three weeks before she died. And I remember telling Gavin that grandma was not going to get better and he lost it. He lost it because I think we had told him for so long. That's my sister, Nikki. She's talking about her son, Gavin, my nephew. And this episode of Unusually Focus is a little bit different because it's my mom's birthday. She would have been 61 years old. And I've told the story about her and her bout with cancer a few times on social media. But I found that when I listen to audiobooks and then listen to the same story over a podcast, you get a whole different experience. And I wanted to experiment with some better sound design and bring some new layers in. So I want to stretch myself a little bit. But mostly I just wanted to post this one as a tribute to her. I, when I do tell the story, I get lots of messages from people who thank me for reminding them to either call their mom or hug their mom or tell their mom they love them or something. And I think that's pretty cool. So this episode is a little bit different in that I'm going to be just telling a story and going through some stuff here. But I hope you like it. And if you don't, well, nothing I can do about that. You know what I'm saying? Nothing I can do. You like it though. It's good. It was the summer of 2015, and I just got to one of my favorite yoga classes. And Los Angeles yoga is a scene, everyone's a savage for mat space. So I got my mat down and I was going to put my bag away, and I noticed my phone was lighting up in my bag. And I just missed the call from my sister, and I also noticed that there was a couple of other missed calls. And she doesn't call me. It's just we, unless something's going on or it needs to happen. So it was the, it felt kind of frantic, and I figured something was going on. I had a few minutes left before class started, so I went outside to call her. And she was with my mom at the hospital, and they told me that something was going on, but they didn't quite know what it was yet. But initially, she never told me anything was wrong first she didn't she knew something was wrong but she didn't want to scare me so I knew nothing I ended up just randomly being at her house and I heard a doctor call her it led me to question what was going on and she had said she's been bloated which was not like her being as thin as she was and she had seen a doctor and the doctor ordered an ultrasound of her abdomen and it showed her liver was enlarged and um, ascites she made the comment that the the tech that did it asked her if she had was a drinker and mom thought she was asking because you needed to drink for the test and she wanted to make sure she drank but mom later realized that the woman was asking if she was a drinker meaning were you an alcoholic because her liver was so large and she had so much fluid and then that kind of led to investigate further as to why is the ascites there it shouldn't have she shouldn't have had any fluid in her abdomen the way that it was so that fucking sucks And then from there, it was just kind of a couple of weeks of waiting. She had to go do some tests until finally they came back with a diagnosis. So her official diagnosis was stage three primary peritoneal cancer. He knew it was primary peritoneal cancer due to the fact that she had previously had a hysterectomy and her CA125 was elevated, which is a tumor marker for ovarian cancer. And you don't have an elevated CA125, generally speaking, unless you have ovarian cancer. And ovarian cancer is the same as primary peritoneal. And of the fact that the cells are the same, 
primary peritoneal originates in your perineum, which is the lining of your abdomen, but ovarian obviously originates in your ovaries. It's treated the same, prognosis is the same, but yeah, he knew right away. He knew right away what it was. The prognosis here is definitely not good. We checked with Dr. Google and all we could find was mostly horror stories. There was very few successful outcomes. And even the ones that were successful, it's, they seem to be caught much early. So we weren't sure what the hell was going to happen, but the next thing they had to do was schedule the surgery and they did that. So she had surgery. From what he told me after the surgery is they, they went in, they essentially cut her from her breastbone to her pubic area, opened her up and saw the cancer. And he had said it was like frosting. Like it was literally all over every surface of her abdomen so they couldn't even really remove anything she had already had all of her female organs removed so they essentially sewed her back up and then three weeks later they started chemotherapy at this point i was in pretty big denial about this whole thing i really couldn't even wrap my head around it and i have vague memories of being with my mom when she went to the hospital before the chemo actually began to install this port thing because i guess the cancer was so aggressive that they needed to take an aggressive approach. So they used this IP port, I believe it was called. It was a brutal, brutal treatment. So she had a intraperitoneal port placed, which is a like a tube in your abdomen where they instilled chemo every three weeks that was. Literally, they would instill the chemo and she would have to turn from side to side so that the chemo would fill her abdominal cavity and then they would drain it out. She also had carboplatin. I think the carboplatin was every week and then the IP cisplatin was every three weeks from what I remember. But it was bad. She Every side effect I think that she could have had, she had for that. It was awful. So it was brutal, but it was encouraging because it seemed to be working. And I was just praying for any sign that it would be working. So at this point, any indication, which it, it wasn't exactly telling, but there seemed to be progress throughout this really aggressive chemotherapy treatment. Yeah, so for sure. So she ended up, her CA125 decreased with every treatment. They tested it at every treatment just to make sure it was doing what it was supposed to. It started out at roughly 500. Probably halfway through chemo, it was normal, but they still, it's the standard course of treatment for ovarian cancer, so they do the full, oh God, what is it, 16 weeks? Um, and it, it was normal midway through, but they kept doing it, and then she ended up having a CT scan a few weeks after the last chemo, and it showed with they call no evidence of disease it means they don't see anything it doesn't mean it's not there but they did not see any cancer present and that was in october or november of 2015 so that's good news and especially because christmas was coming up and my mom her favorite holiday was always christmas she's a psycho about it and i always was home for christmas and i had planned to be there again this year so it was a just a good thing that we were going to be celebrating together and that shit wasn't looming as large at least that's what I had hoped. So initially, things were okay. She was starting to get stronger. She felt okay. She ended up going to, right before you came home, I think, for Christmas, we ended up in the ER at Northwestern because she was having belly pain. And she was so scared that it was back. And thankfully, at that point, it wasn't. They thought it was scar tissue from the, just the, the chemo that she had was so caustic. Sent her home. Um, she was good from what she told me. She was good. Something tells me February 11th, that day stands out in my head. She was getting upset and she told me she could feel 
a tumor in her abdomen. And I said, you're crazy. That's not what it is. It's a hernia. A lot of times after a major abdominal surgery, people um, develop abdominal hernias. And I remember her laying on the couch and saying, Nikki, feel this. And there was a lump. And I kept telling her, no, it's a hernia. You're wrong. It's a hernia. And then she ended up going to the doctor and they confirmed that it, in fact, was back. She had a mass attached to her liver at that point. This is where shit gets a little bit fucked up. So the doctor that was treating her at this point noticed that her family had a history of cancer. So the my mom is one of 13 children, which is crazy, but she has a lot of sisters and there's been a lot of both breast and ovarian cancer in the women of this family. So the current doctor said that the person who did the preventative surgery that my mom had done a few years prior should not have done that procedure because he wasn't a doctor working out of a cancer center. So given the family history, he should have told her, you should go to a cancer center to do this procedure because they do different testing. Okay, so she had a hysterectomy that was supposed to be a prophylactic preventative surgery in April of 2014. She had everything removed. Um, The doctor said everything was fine. The biopsies came back normal. However, I later found, we later found out um, through her gynec, who was one of the most respected gynecs in the country, um, that she probably had ovarian cancer during that initial surgery um, at a much earlier stage. However, because she had it done at just a regular community hospital and not a cancer center, they don't do the surgeries the same. And the doctor was a regular gynecologist who had no business doing the surgery due to her family's history. And essentially when they biopsy the tissue, they'll take like a little piece of an ovary, a little piece of a fallopian tube, and they'll analyze it. And everything came back okay. However, if you have it done at a cancer center, they take every single organ that they take out of you and they cut it up like a slight, like a loaf of bread and they examine every single piece. So what I was, what we were told was that it was potentially missed during her initial surgery because they didn't examine all of the tissue and uh, it could have been detected much earlier. That little piece there is one of the reasons that I tell this story semi-frequently is because I think it might be effective for just one person if this sort of situation happens and they end up going for some sort of preventative care because of family history or something. And just to be really sure that the place that you go for this care is that they don't just say they can do the job, but that they're actually extra qualified to deal with special cases. It's an important thing that I we were considering, you know, pursuing some sort of malpractice thing, but it was just too much and no one wanted to deal with it. So we just let it go. But scary shit. But at this point, there isn't a whole lot that she can do. So the doctor just went ahead and did the surgery. And they removed the mass. And the doctor was actually kind of optimistic because he said it was a pretty clean surgery. Like it wasn't spread out all over. It was just this mass. It was 12 centimeters, I think. But they were able to remove the whole mass um, from her liver and they burned the surface of the liver to try to prevent any kind of spread. Um, And then she was supposed to start chemo. But when she went for her follow-up visit after the surgery, he, he asked me, Diane, and Debbie to leave the room. And he never did that. So we went into like a conference room and he must have told her that the cells had kind of morphed into something nastier. I remember him telling her she must have asked about life expectancy, but he told her she was looking at months, not years. That shit is fucked. Imagine months, not years. 
So it's a pretty shitty situation here. And I am traveling back and forth from Chicago to Los Angeles. I'm trying to just kind of hold my class together. I was lucky enough and that I could get really good teachers to come and teach it, but I was traveling back and forth. And that's actually one of my life's biggest regrets is that period of time and me not just burning the whole fucking class to the ground. But my mom was adamant about me staying and running my business and doing all of my stuff. There wasn't a whole lot I could do in that. I'm still even just hearing myself say it. I still feel really guilty about that because I should have disobeyed the fuck out of that. But I didn't. My mom was really strong, though, and she held it together, you know, as as best she could. And she was I mean, she was um, good at pretending things were okay. She maintained a pretty solid front. Uh, I guess you'd say she um, main, She didn't let people know, I think, how upset she was and how um, difficult it was for her. She still was cleaning and doing up, taking care of her animals. She was still doing everything that she normally did for the most part after that surgery. So at this point, things are looking pretty good. She had plans to come visit me in California. She had never been here before, so I was excited that she kept those plans. And... It was pretty cool, actually. A friend of mine, Nick Rowley, Courtney Rowley, there are a couple of attorneys who come to my who were coming to my yoga class at the time, and they're super hotshot ballers, and they have this really sick beach house in Malibu. And he asked me, he's like, "Dude, if you want, you guys can use the use the house, so your mom doesn't have to use a hotel and all that shit." So I was super stoked about that. The place was just out of control, right on the water, and I'm really that's one of the things that I will never forget them. I'm, I'm proud that I was able to hook that up for my mom on her first trip to Los Angeles. I remember before we went to California, she went to the doctor right before we went and her numbers were good and she felt good because she was in treatment. Every, and like, so that was, I'm so glad we went and I'm so glad she got good news before we went because her trip was, I think, so much better because she thought the treatment was working. Everything looked good. So the trip was really cool and I had tried some last ditch things. There's a thing called uh, Rick Simpson oil, which is a really pure cannabis oil that you extract from large amounts of marijuana to distill it down into this really potent um, oil. And I got my mom 10 grams or so of that stuff. You're supposed to take much, much more over a 60 day period and all kinds of crazy people claim that it cures cancer. I I had no idea. I mean, at this point I was so desperate that I was kind of fishing and hoping, but never really being confident in the solution, but just the idea that it would maybe help her eat a little bit more. One of the funny things about my mom is that I, in in my entire life, I I have a vague recollection when I was really young of her being a little bit buzzed one time. So she never did anything like she never drank or smoked or did any of that stuff. So she didn't, she didn't like being out of control and um, any sort of thing that made her mind feel weird. She didn't like very much. So it wasn't a super success getting her to take that stuff. She did try though. And I don't really know that it did much. It may have you know, gotten her a little bit high and maybe laugh a couple of times or something, but mostly, I mean, and honestly, like the whole situation was shitty beyond imagine, but she, the, you know, she went out on her own terms. Carol and I were talking about that. She was independent up until the last day or two. She was still able to walk and do her, you know, she went out on her own terms. I think she was comfortable. She didn't, she was so doped up. I don't think she felt any pain at the end. I really don't. There was a pretty cool moment in this period. This is near the very end. And she was 
really doped up, as my sister said, and not lucid a lot of the time, but my sister and I both decided to get a tattoo on the inside of our right forearms. And the tattoo says, love you more. It was something that she was actually saying to my my nephew, not really us when we were younger, we weren't all lovey-dovey and shit like that. But we liked it, so we both got the tattoo. And when we went back home, my mom was sitting on the chair that she was likes to sit in. And when I we went up to show her, her eyes lit up like she recognized it. We're not, normally like if I had gotten a tattoo when she was, you know, none of this has, was going on. She'd be like, what the, what the fuck? You got a tattoo? You idiot. Like she would just bust my balls about it. I mean, not seriously, but just bust my balls. But um, it was a weird thing because she didn't have enough energy, I think, to bust my balls. So she really just smiled. And she's like, what, what does that say? Like that was the, that was like the last really lucid moment I remember my mom having when she saw the tattoos that my sister and I got. So the final day was July 16th of 2016. I was in Chicago at this point. I'd been there for a couple of weeks. I was back and forth a little bit at the end, but I was mostly there and I was lucky enough to have a bunch of really good friends who were stepping up for me to teach my classes and take care of business while I was gone. And in the final sort of hours, there was at some point I realized like she was, I mean, she was completely out of it and it was whatever that, like that death rattle sound is that they talk about where like the, it's like gurgling sound like that was coming. But I remembered from, I don't even know where it was from, but that like the sense of hearing tends to go last. And my mom raised me on classic rock and Led Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and all this stuff. So in journey, REO speed wagon. So I remembered to turn on some music. So I brought Spotify and busted out a playlist and started playing some of her, favorite songs so yep that was it that shit sucked that honestly i can tell you one of the worst days of my life was the day that i told i remember sitting on the couch in the living room and it was maybe three weeks before she died and i remember telling gavin that grandma was not going to get better and he lost it he lost it because i think we had told him for so long through all the treatments and everything that it, the treatments are supposed to make her better. She's losing the hair because the medicine's trying to make her better. We told him so often that the things were the way they were because the medicine was trying to make grandma better. And he lost it. Gracie was too young. Um, she was, she died the day before Gracie turned three, but Gavin, that destroyed him. They were buddies. You know, I mean, that was her, that was, she loved Gavin more than she loved either. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That was, that was the worst, probably one of the worst days of my life that was telling that child that she wasn't going to get better. And he understood too, which was so weird. He got it. He knew what it meant. It's, he was six. He knew what it meant when I said she wasn't going to get better. I have two major regrets in my life and I will save one for another episode, but this one is I regret how much time I spent in Los Angeles to teach my class during these the final year really I should have been in Chicago more and she was insistent but I should have not listened and been there more and I will never really fully forgive myself for that so all I can really do now is just tell the story and hopefully maybe inspire someone else to call their mom or tell their mom they love them or hug them or whatever the hell you're not doing you know because you fucking should do it god damn it but I just wanted to say just in case she can hear this podcast happy birthday mom I love you I miss you and 
for you listeners. Thank you for listening. I know this was a little bit strange. I wanted to flex and stretch my editing skills on this episode to see what came out. Hopefully it came out pretty cool. And I'll get back to business as usual-ish next time. Business as unusual. That's pretty cool. Right on. Well, rate, review, all that shit. Thanks for listening. Call your mom. Later. Later.